Galatians chapter 6. Please turn to Galatians chapter 6 as we continue our fall practice on fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil. Last time we kicked off module 2 on the flesh. In case you missed it, I don't have time to recap all of that content. We have a lot of ground to cover. Go back if you're up for it. Listen to the podcast. Short version. We define the flesh as the base, animalistic, primal drive in all of us for self-gratification. Put another way, it's the part of our heart that is bent away from God and from his definition of good and beautiful and true and is instead, in the language of the fourth century African theologian Augustine, turned in on itself. Um, And calling out this corner of our heart is just naming an aspect of the human condition that we all have to fight, follower of Jesus or not. This inner tug of war between our mixed desires, some of which are good others and healthy, others of which are the exact opposite. But the way of Jesus, this is not a new idea and it's not a Christian idea, but the way of Jesus has a unique contribution to make because its solution to the problem of what we call the flesh is not willpower but is the Spirit's power, all of which leads us to Galatians chapter 6. This week's teaching is essentially part two of a very long teaching that we started last time from Galatians 5 and 6, which is one of the go-to passages in the New Testament for a biblical theology of the flesh and the spirit. We left off last time, if you were here, at the end of chapter 5 with this idea that the West in general, and America in particular, has radically redefined the idea of freedom. Often what we call freedom, we mean is the ability to do whatever the heck we want, which is actually what Jesus and Paul and the writers of the New Testament define as slavery because when we give into our flesh the part of our heart that is bent away we end up enslaved by our own desires in particular by our desires to sin now for tonight let's keep reading we left off at the end of chapter 5 let's start off in chapter 6 verse 1 remember the chapters the verses the subheadings the paragraph breaks none of that is there in the original Greek in fact if you were a Galatian you would have had this read to you out loud in one sitting in church on a Sunday night. Next, Paul's not done. Next, Paul goes on to lay out how it is that we are either enslaved by our flesh to death or set free by the Spirit to life. Keep reading. Chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, or hey, family, if someone is caught in a sin, Another way to define the flesh is as our desire to sin or the part of our heart that wants to sin. Paul has not changed the subject at all. If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, hopefully the majority of the family or the church, should restore that person. That's always God's heart, to restore somebody. That person gently. That's the emotional and relational tone of a family and of an apprentice of Jesus to another apprentice of Jesus. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Pay close attention to your own heart. Nobody is immune to temptation. Two, carry each other's burdens, which in context is not like grief or trauma or pain, but is actually temptation. And in this way, fulfill the Torah of the Messiah or the law of Christ or all of Jesus' vision and his teaching for your life. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves, one selfie at a time. That's in an alternate manuscript right there. Um, (laughs) 
not in the one that the NIV has here, right? If you think, man, you are something when you're not. If you think, and the idea here isn't, you know, fame or whatever. The idea here is I have it down. This sin is not a problem for me. This temptation is not a problem. I've moved on. I have it. If that's your heart posture, um, they deceive themselves. Nobody is immune. <clears throat> Each one should test their own actions. There's a healthy place for <coughs> a self <coughs> excuse me, for a water bottle on stage, and for a self-edit and self-examination of your own life. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, right? A sign of the immature is you compare and you contrast yourself to other people in general and those that are less mature than you in particular. And there's this self-righteous kind of arrogance, and it's just foolish, right? That's not maturity. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word or the message about Jesus should share all good things with their instructor or teacher. Now, here is kind of the climax of Paul's case. Do not be what? Deceived. Remember, our working theory for this practice is it's deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. That is the strategy for ruin in our soul and in society at large, right? Hopefully you have that put to memory by now. Do not be deceived. That's like the origin point right there of all of it in our mind. Don't be deceived. God cannot be what? Mocked. A man reaps what he sows, and so does a woman. Whoever sows to please their flesh, meaning whoever does something, if you give into, if you gratify, if you invest your resources of time, money, effort, energy into your flesh, into following the desires of that corner of your heart, from the flesh will reap destruction. From who will reap destruction? <laughs> Moving on. From who? From the flesh, right? Not from God right? It's from the flesh. Nine times out of ten, the punishment for sin is the consequences of sin. Has little to nothing to do with God. It's just God, it's just you and I running our own course. On the other hand, here's the good news, whoever sows to please the Spirit, meaning if you sow, if you give to, if you invest your resources in following the Spirit of God in your heart, you will reap from God eternal life. Now that phrase, eternal life, most of us are familiar with, but actually you might not know this, a number of scholars argue that's not a good English translation because most of us hear eternal life and we just think life forever somewhere else up in the sky, which is most likely not on Paul's mind right here. A number of scholars argue a better English translation of the Greek or the original language is the life of the age to come because it's not just quantity of life that Paul is writing about, but quality of life. It's not just life forever, but it's a kind of life in the here and the now and on into eternity, both and. From the Spirit will reap the quality and quantity of the life of the age to come now and forever. Now, nine, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. 
How many of you have read that verse before at the end or had somebody pray that over you or encourage you with that? It's beautiful. But what's easy to forget is usually when I read that or when people pray that over me or say that to me, it's applied to a hard season in life. Like, hey, don't grow weary, doing good, stay at it as a mom or a parent or in your job or in your church or whatever. And that's wonderful. But actually here it's applied by Paul not to a hard season in life, but to your ongoing fight with your flesh. Don't grow weary. Don't give up in the fight. Don't surrender. Don't throw in the towel and say it's too hard. It's too much work. The odds are against me. Like, no, never give up. Never surrender. It's that kind of a call, right? Like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do Gary Oldman at all, by the way. If you missed that, it's incredible. But we digress. The seven is always a mess up here. I'm so sorry. Uh, The ten was fine. Um, He's saying, don't give up in your fight against the flesh, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. Now, this idea that a man or a woman reaps what he or she sows outside of the Bible is called the law of returns. And there are other, it's not a Christian idea. Again, this is just a human condition idea. There are other ways to state it. What goes around comes around like father, like You get out what you put in. You get what you deserve. No pain, no gain. Garbage in, garbage out. Karma, um, the way Jesus said it was, quote, give and it will be given to you. And then he said, press down, shaken together. In another spot, he said, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you and more, end quote. The idea of the law of returns is very simple and has two parts. One, every action has a reaction. This is literally a law of thermodynamics and just a reality of the human condition. And two, that reaction is often disproportionate to the action. Now, Paul says it to an agrarian economy with the word picture of sowing and reaping. Any gardeners in the room? Southeast people, anything? Yes, you know who you are. You know what Paul is talking about. Very simple, two ideas. One, sow a rose, seed, and you get what? A rose. Sow poison ivy, and you get what? Yes, a noxious weed. And two, sow a seed, a little black dot, smaller than your fingernail, and in time, you get what? A little black dot back? No, you get a rose bush back or a hedge of ivy, or a tree, or in Paul's metaphor, a harvest, or an entire field back in return. If Paul were writing to our knowledge economy, my guess is he would have said it with the word picture of compound interest, the miracle of the market. I have this vivid memory from when I was in my early 20s, and we had just planted uh, our church, and prior to that, I was a youth pastor. I made minimum wage. I wasn't even a salary. It was like I would turn in a time card at the end of the week. And I think the minimum wage was like seven bucks an hour or something unjust at the time. And we plant this church, and it was just like a few hundred bucks a month with no health insurance for the first six months, 12 months. I can't even remember. And finally, we're up and running, and you guys start to give. And so the elders sit me down and give me my first ever salary. I'm 23 years old. And, it's my, and it wasn't much, but it was like, okay, I have, a, I have a salary job. I'm salaried now, actually. It's a big moment in my life. 
And one of our elders was this financial guru. He ran an investment company. You would never have known it. Um, he was, you know, lived a very simple lifestyle, was very generous, but was a bit of a wizard with money and had been very good with his finances. And he sat me down to give me basically free financial planning. And I remember when he sat me down and he worked out, all right, here's how you do retirement. And he said, all right, retirement age for you is 2045. Here's how much money you need in order to have residual income of 70% of what you make now, which means here's how much you have to invest every single month in order to like not live off of your children when you are in your 70s or whatever. And um, I remember sitting with him, and if you've ever sat with a financial planner, some of you that are kind of out and you're in your career now, you remember this moment. They sit you down and they show you compound interest in a graph, what it actually looks like for your life. And it's just crazy. Have you ever seen that graph? Some of you, it's like, yet you're like, financial planner, what a concept. It's there, out there. <laughs> There's this thing, if you look at like retirement investment, for the first couple decades of your career, it does this. Like, it just not even inches up. It doesn't even centimeter up. It like, just kind of a notch up. So it's like through your 20s, it does this. Through your 30s, it goes up a little bit. Through your 40s, it goes up a little bit. And then all of a sudden, in your 50s, you just become Bill Gates in like 10 years. <laughs> it just at the very end, it's like, you know, compound interest. It's like the same as a population growth around the world or whatever. It just does this for a long time. And then all of a sudden, the wake, the miracle of compound interest, it just goes like this. And I remember him sitting down with me and saying, listen, it's not about how much money you invest. It's about how early you start. And he had some crazy stat, and Doug, you would know what the math is. I don't remember. All of you finance people, just roll your eyes at this next part. But he had some crazy stat, like, you're 23, and if you put in $200 a month starting now, you will have twice as much in retirement as if you were to put in $2,000 a month when you're, start, when you're 43. Or I have no idea if that math is right. Something like that. Doug down here knows. Something like, he was one of our elders at the time. Something like that is true. It's this dramatic number. I remember thinking, Wow. And to this day, I don't think about it much, but maybe once a year, I like it comes to mind and I log into my little investment portfolio and I see what I have. And it's been 15 years now and there's not much there, but um, <laughs> it's not a retirement, but maybe a really nice vacation, you know? But I don't stress because I've been really good with my money and I've put it all away 15 years now in. And I know, I remember the compound interest graph in my mind. And I know this is not supposed to do much in 38, not even at 48, but at 58. Oh, baby, we're going out to Tusk twice a week for the rest of our life. <laughs> I know that's coming, right? No, on a, on a serious note, I know because this is the miracle of compound interest, which is not only a financial reality, but listen carefully. Here's why I tell you that story. It is a life reality. Theologian Cornelius Plantinga, in his masterpiece of a book on sin, which we have out there in our recommended reading, writes this, No matter what we sow, money or otherwise, the law of returns applies, good or evil, love or hate, justice or tyranny, grapes or thorns, a gracious compliment or a peevish complaint, whatever we invest, we tend to get it back with interest. Lovers are loved, Haters hated, forgivers usually get forgiven, those who live by the sword die by the sword. God is not mocked, for you reap whatever you sow. Again, follower of Jesus, or Buddhist, or agnostic, or whatever, it does not matter. This is just how things are in the universe. Trying to get around this is like trying to get around the law of gravity. All that to say, and stay with me here, 
Paul applies this idea of the law of returns not to your retirement nest egg to make a case for why you should invest in your 20s. He applies this law of returns to your spiritual formation and to mine. If that language is new to you, all we mean by that is the process by which we are formed from our spirit, from our inside out, to become a very specific kind of person, for better or for worse. Let's flesh this out. Every time we, quote, sow to our flesh, in Paul's language, put another way, every time we give into our flesh's desire to sin, we plant something in the soil of our heart that then begins to take root and grow and eventually to yield a character. And vice versa, every time we sow to the Spirit, every time we give in to the Spirit's impulse in us toward love and Jesus' definition of life in the kingdom, we plant something in the soil of our hearts. And then it begins to take root and grow and in the end to yield a character. Again, Plantinga goes on. Inside a given human life, the dynamics of sowing, reaping, and re-sowing lie behind the process of character formation. Dispositions and acts, by dispositions he means the way you think and feel and kind of move through the universe, and acts, your habits, the decisions you make, form your character, which then forms dispositions and acts. You see there's a cycle. A mere state of mind can eventually swell to become a person's destiny, say negativity. We'll use that as an example in a minute. A fuller statement of the great law of returns would therefore go something like this. Sow a thought and reap a deed. Sow a deed and reap another deed. Sow some deeds, all of you in the mood to do that, and reap a habit. Sow some habits and reap a character. Sow a character and reap two thoughts. The new thoughts then begin to pursue careers of their own. Meaning, the cycle begins to feed off its own energy and either spiral out of control into disaster, what he calls destruction, or culminate in Christ-likeness. The law of returns is the mechanism of our spiritual formation. It is how we are either formed from our spirit out to become more like Jesus and in doing so utterly ourself, or malformed by the world, the flesh, and the devil to become less ourself and to fit the status quo of our society. To get a little more clarity on this idea of the law of returns and its relationship to our spiritual formation, let's run this idea through the lens of psychology, philosophy, and theology. Because remember, prior to the Enlightenment, prior to the compartmentalism of modern kind of academic and the university system, these three disciplines were all one discipline that was spirituality or apprenticeship to Jesus. So on that note, and again, I know just enough to be dangerous, but we'll see what, how this goes. First off, psychology. Charles Duhigg, in his best-selling book, The Power of Habit, popularized what psychologists have been saying for decades, that our choices become our habits, and our habits in turn become our character, and as Ralph Waldo Emerson so famously said, our character becomes our destiny. Put another way, we make our decisions, and then our decisions make us. And this idea of the power of habit, if you listen to it on a podcast or read a popular self-help book, is a fun little idea when you apply it to your workout routine or your workflow or your email, but it's a sobering reality when we apply it to our spiritual formation. 
Dr. Eric Fromm, not a follower of Jesus by any stretch of the imagination. He started out as a rabbi, then after living through two world war world wars, became an atheistic Jewish-German psychologist, and in his research on Nazism, came to the conclusion that nobody is born evil. Instead, people become evil, this was his thesis, quote, slowly over time through a long series of choices. His book, The Heart of Man, is still like a go-to text in psychology. He writes this, the longer we continue to make the wrong decisions, the more our heart hardens. This is why the more you sin, the less you feel bad about it. The more often we make the right decision, the more our heart softens. This is why the longer you follow Jesus, the actually more you feel your sin. It's so counterintuitive. Or better, perhaps, comes alive. That sounds like Jesus or Paul. Each step in life with increases my self-confidence, my integrity, my courage, my conviction, also increase my capacity to choose the desirable alternative, meaning when you have two mixed desires, think of last time, the flesh and the spirit, your capacity to choose the right thing, until eventually it becomes more difficult for me to choose the undesirable, the flesh in our framework, than the desirable action, the spirit, meaning you come to a point in your apprenticeship to Jesus where it would be easier to compliment somebody than to criticize them, easier to love your enemy than to harbor anger and bitterness, easier to trust God than to stress out. Sometimes it takes decades, but you get to that point. On the other hand, each act of surrender and cowardice weakens me, opens the path for more acts of surrender, and eventually freedom is lost. More on that in a minute. Between the extreme, when I can no longer do a wrong act, I'm a few years away from that one, and the extreme, when I have lost my freedom to right action, meaning you can't do the right, the right thing, there are innumerable degrees of freedom of choice, and most of us live in that awkward middle. Most people fail, listen to this, in the art of living, not because they are inherently bad or so without will that they cannot lead a better life, they fail because they do not wake up and see when they stand at a fork in the road and have to decide. His point is, <laughs> the fork in the road, the tip of the spear, is the daily decisions, the innumerable number, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of ordinary, boring, thoughtless, daily decisions that eventually shape us into who we do or do not become. Think of your character and out of that your destiny as the cumulative effect of a million tiny decisions you make. Take an example as drastic as, say, an affair, one of the few things that is still kind of off limits in our sexual economy. Nobody just wakes up one morning in a happy marriage and has an affair that night. I'm sure there's one example, but for, as a general rule, nobody. Um, in every story I have ever come across, which are sadly way too many, the affair started not with the act of infidelity, but a thousand acts earlier. Not with the decision to cheat, but a thousand decisions earlier. The decision to watch this movie, or skip date night, or make this flirtatious comment to a coworker, or move here, or not go to therapy, or whatever it was, there were a thousand tiny, mundane decisions made over, most of the time, years if not decades, that all built up to a head and brought ruin from the substrata to the surface of a life. And the same is true for a non-dramatic example. Take something like negativity. Every, which is something I struggle with, that's why I think of this one. Every decision that we make to complain 
or criticize or play the victim or focus on the negative, we become more and more the kind of person who is by nature negative, nitpicky, unhappy, kind of not that fun to be around, until eventually we lose our very capacity to, in the language of Jesus, rejoice to celebrate all that is good and beautiful and true in his world, to live with ease and gratitude and appreciation and wonder and in the end, love for God, for the other, and for our life. In the beginning, we have a choice, but eventually we have a character. All of that leads me to our second discipline, philosophy. One of the great questions of philosophy is over free will. Do we have free will? What exactly is free will? And there's all sorts of debate, in particular now with neurobiology and evolutionary psychology in both the academy and inside the church, in particular between the Calvinistic and other schools of theology. We chatted last week around the idea that most philosophers, not all, but most, argue that human beings have, in the language of philosophy, self-determining freedom, meaning we get to decide what to do with our life. We're not run by our primal evolutionary drives to copulate or eat or sleep. We have those drives, but we also have with them a capacity, unlike the animals, to override those drives in order for a higher good or something like that. My favorite book on this subject is Satan and the Problem of Evil by Greg Boyd. It's about 20 years old. It's a masterpiece. It's the best case I've ever read against Calvinistic determinism. And he has about a third of the book as philosophy. He's a Yale kind of professor. Boyd writes this about our spiritual formation. Self-determining freedom, listen, this is a bit dense, so we're, we're talking philosophy here. Just stay with me. None of us really know what he's talking about, but let's just pretend we're smart. Self-determining freedom ultimately gives way Either, meaning, because you have this capacity, you're born with it to choose, one of two things happens. Either it gives way to a higher form of freedom, the freedom to be creatures whose love defines them, or the lowest form of bondage, the inability to participate in love. We either become beings who are irrevocably open or irrevocably close to God's love. The former is eternal life, the latter is eternal death. What he's saying in context is that with each passing year, or better said, with each passing decision, we're either becoming more open to the spirit of love and free, or more closed to the spirit of love and enslaved. C.S. Lewis, another brilliant mind, not technically a philosopher, but a great luminary from the 20th century, who also lived through both world wars, said this, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, we would call it the will, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, All your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Later, he said that we're all becoming immortal splendors or everlasting horrors. And then he said, of those that reject Jesus and his way, in the beginning, they will not, but in the end, they cannot. His point was, and most philosophers agree on this, Our freedom expands or shrinks with each decision that we make. Every decision that we make to give into our flesh, to sow to the flesh in Paul's language, 
If you give into your flesh and then you do it again, and then you do it again, and then it becomes a habit, and then it becomes a character, and then it becomes your destiny, eventually you become the kind of person who has to sin, major or minor. You have to check your phone. You have to have a glass of alcohol before you can sleep. You have to make a biting comment at somebody you're mad at. You have to masturbate to porn. You don't have a choice anymore. We have at that point lost, or at least seriously shrunk down to size, our self-determining freedom, this capacity that we have that makes us very different from the animals. The longer you choose a habit, or even just a disposition, even just a state of mind, from something as normal as negativity to as serious as rebellion against God, the less likely you are to ever change because we irreversibly and irrevocably become the decisions we make. As the folk saying goes, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Who normally says that? Young people or old people? Old people. I never hear young people say that. You hear old people say that a lot. This is why, seriously, there is, think about it, there is a tendency, just as there's a tendency for the rich to get richer and the poor to get poorer, which is a major problem right now in our society, there's also a tendency for the good to get better and the bad to get worse. This is why most elderly people you know, and I don't mean like people over 40, I mean people over like 80 or 90, are either amazing or horrible. <laughs> just think about it, run through the mental Rolodex of like all the people you know over 90. Very few of them are just kind of middle of the road. Most of them are, are like, like I think of my grandparents have all passed away, and on my wife's side, we were, she has one grandmother still alive, and we were just with her for Thanksgiving. She's 93, this devout Catholic. I don't think she's sinned since 1984, you know? <laughs> and and she's, she is wonderful. I've never heard a negative comment about her from any of her children, any of her grandchildren. She's just this, like, not matriarch, not that. She's just like... She's like, a, she's like a saint in the family kind of thing. And she's dying right now. She just got out of the hospital, bad fall, was moved into assisted living, doesn't have a single friend. I mean, by all accounts, her life is miserable right now. And I sat with her and chatted to her for maybe, I don't know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes before Thanksgiving dinner. I could not get her to say one negative thing. The <laughs> closest thing she ever got to a complaint was one line. Getting old is for the birds, she said. That's <laughs> the closest thing. And she's in a wheelchair, just got out of the hospital. Her husband of, you know, 50-something years has been dead. I mean, and still she's, and it wasn't, it's not like a fake, like, you know, some people are just fake and just, it's not that. She's a genuine person of love and joy and peace. That's what happens when you follow Jesus. When I'm around people like that, they make me, first off, question the doctrine of original sin. And seriously consider John Wesley's idea of sinless perfection. If you know that idea, Wesley, one of the great leaders of church history, actually thought that we can come to the point in our apprenticeship with Jesus when we don't sin anymore. Most of us that are a little bit younger, we think that sounds ridiculous. Come on, back to earth. Hang out with some 93-year-olds who've been following Jesus since like World War I. And you're like, oh, maybe that is a thing, sinless perfection. You know what I mean? Like what it, when they come down to receive communion, you're like, what are you repenting of? I'm not sure. Too much TV guide or something? I don't know. What are you repenting of? <laughs> I have no idea. My point is most elderly people don't stay in the middle ground 
eventually they move toward hell or they move toward heaven. And it's easy to forget this, especially if you're young and especially if a lot of your community are followers of Jesus. We realize, oh, we live in a crazy young city or in a pretty young church. Most of the people that we spend time with are still in their 20s or 30s. Most of the people we know that are, say, 40s and up or really 50s and 60s and up have all been following Jesus usually for longer than we've been alive. I think of like Penny, who's in my home community, who's, you know, 63 or something. I don't think she's sinned since at least the late 90s. Um, And so, and we realize we don't have an accurate sample. When you're in your 20s in particular, and a lot of you in the room here, you have, at least I remember, this sense of like pliability. You feel like, ah, who will I become? I hate to break it to you, that feeling goes away after a while. And it's replaced by, oh, dang, this is who I became. (laughs) That's not nearly as fun of a feeling, trust me, right? The point is, in your 20s, you have, in theory, a philosopher would say you have more self-determining freedom. You, You have a greater capacity to become any number of kinds of people. You have the capacity. If you're 22, who knows who you will become? If you're 42, Mm, A lot of us know who you became. (laughs) And that doesn't mean you can't change. It doesn't mean that the power of the Spirit can't break into your life at all. It just means the time to do some of the serious, deep work of healing, transformation, spiritual formation, apprenticeship to Jesus is not like when you're older and you have extra time, which, by the way, you never have. It's now. It's always now. No matter what your age is, whether you're 71 or 17, it's now. Because now, if you're 22, 28, whatever, you think this is a quirk or it's just an issue or I'll deal with it later, I'll grow out of it, trust me, you will not grow out of anything. You will not. Like the time those things end up cemented into your character, for better or for worse, this is either horrible news or wonderful news, depending on where you're at with Jesus. The point is, a philosopher would argue, and most of us would just attest to this by common tense and kind of an antidotal evidence of, well, the 90-somethings I know, we become more free or more enslaved to or away from love as we age. I don't mean that in an ageist way at all. Please hear my heart. I mean that in the sense of our formation. Finally, theology. One of the great questions of theology is over hell, as long as we're on this note, and you're gonna email me anyway. Um, What is hell exactly? Uh, Is it metaphysical or not? Who goes there? Is that even the right language? Is it torture or is it the popular imagination? Right, does it last forever or just for a time? Et cetera, et cetera. And there are all sorts of goofy ideas about hell in the Western church that started with Dante's Inferno and live on in billboards on the side of I-5, right past um, Lloyd Center that have, you know, heaven and blue clouds on one side and hell and red flames on the other, which is so not helpful. And without getting into the debate over eternal conscious torment versus annihilationism versus second chance Christian universalism versus Unitarian universalism, which is very different, versus Catholic purgatory, without getting into all of that, and just don't let your limbic system freak out right now, okay? That's a whole other teaching series. There's no way to talk about it well in less than a few hours. What's often, here's all I want to say about this. What's often missing in that long-running debate around hell and how we feel about it, is the rather simple observation that if the kingdom of heaven is a society of people living in Jesus' presence under his rule and his reign and into his vision of human flourishing, for many people, in all honesty, that would be a kind of hell. 
we have little reason to believe that if somebody doesn't want to do that now, they don't want to follow Jesus now. They don't want to define good and evil and beauty and ugly and true and lie based on Jesus and his teaching. They don't want to do life with the community of Jesus followers all in the presence of God. If they don't want that now, why would anybody want that for eternity? That would not be heaven. That would be closer to hell. Best analogy I can think of is Florida. <laughs> um, I apologize to Bethany, all podcasters, and any of you from Florida for this next bit. Just roll with me. My intent is not malicious. My language might be, but my intent is not. I've only been to Florida once. God save me. Um, it was a horrible experience. The heat, the humidity. I grew up in California, but I grew up in Northern California where like 90 is about as hot as it gets, you know, and there's no humidity. I don't do heat like that. I don't do humidity like that. I just remember this was years ago, and I, I, and I was <laughs> speaking for this conference, and there was a hotel, and across the street was this conference center. And I just remember trying to walk from my hotel to the conference center in skinny jeans. And I made it about ha to the stoplight. And then it was just, I could not move. Everything just glued and sucked, peeling my jeans off at the end. It was just horrible. Now, and I know I wasn't, I hear this in an art scene in Orlando, and somebody, a podcaster once sent me some great coffee from Tampa or something. Okay, apparently I was not there. I was in like NASCAR meets Disney meets Tommy Bahama meets where am I, right? <laughs> and here's, here's my point. This is not to slam Florida. Wait, wait with me. Florida actually comes out as a good guy in this analogy. Stay with me. Apparently, I'm told by Bethany and some of my East Coast New Yorker friends that many people's dreams is to retire on a golf course in Florida. That's like the dream. There are people right now slugging it out in West Michigan, just like where winter is 10 months long, just saving every penny, won't buy a new car, no car payment, like walking to work in negative 90 degrees, whatever, don't go out to eat, just saving for someday. The dream is to retire on a golf course in Florida. For some people, that would be heaven on earth. Not for me. That would be the opposite place on earth for me. I hate humidity. I hate heat. I like good coffee. I'm not into NASCAR. I don't like golf. I even tried to like golf. I, I have a number of my really good friends are really into golf. I tried to like it just to like them. I found it so tedious. I thought if I'm going to do anything with like athlet, quasi-athletic, which isn't really my style anyway, but if I'm going to do it, it should like decrease my anxiety, not increase my anxiety. <laughs> and I thought, this is no way. And I, and I thought about it. I thought, okay, I could invest hundreds of hours of my life and thousands of dollars in becoming the kind of person with the capacity to play golf and quasi-enjoy it. But why? Why would I? No, I just, I, seriously, I decided not to become that kind of person. Now, here's my point. Through a long series of decisions made both by me and by my parents and my grandparents who immigrated to California and Oregon, I have become the kind of person for whom retirement on a golf course in Florida would be a kind of hell. I am not, the, not because it's bad, because I don't have the capacity to enjoy it. I, it sounds like it probably would be a great life, but I do not, I, am, I have not become the kind of person through my spiritual formation who would even enjoy what other people have been working toward their entire life. You all see where I'm going with this. See, Florida came out on the, on the heaven side, right? 
Some people would be miserable in the kingdom of heaven. They would hate it. Not because life under Jesus' rule and reign would be anything less than Edenic, but because they have not become, I don't mean this in a disparaging way, through their own self-determining freedom, they have not become the kind of people who would even enjoy that kind of a life. As Willard used to say, hell is just the best God can do for some people. And I don't buy the eternal conscious torment thing. I think there is very much some kind of a post-mortem judgment. You can't get around Jesus' teaching on that. It was actually a major theme. Hell wasn't, but judgment went in his mind. But I don't think it is God torturing people in some, you know, abyss that's flames for eternity. I don't buy that. I don't think that's biblical. I don't think that's what Jesus taught. But there is something to it. I don't think God sends anybody there. I think God honors our human dignity. He honors our capacity to choose for him or against him, for life or for death, for eternity with him in his kingdom, or for you die and you're done. He honors our dignity and our capacity to choose. One of the best ways, here's, here's my point, here's where I'm going with all of that. One of the best ways to view your apprenticeship to Jesus is as a life of training to become the kind of person who would not only enjoy but fit right in in the kingdom of God. You know, I grew up in a Protestant tradition of church, and so I always thought the Catholic idea of purgatory was just ridiculous. And then uh, one of my favorite writers has become Ronald Rollheiser, who's a Catholic priest, one of my kind of top three, four favorite writers. And I remember a few years ago reading his case for purgatory, and he's brilliant mind, and it was so compelling. And he was really honest. He said, oh, we Catholics don't get this idea from the Bible. No good Catholic scholar would argue this from the Bible. We get this from logic and philosophy. This is a basic idea. Most people, if you, we were to die today, would not have the capacity to even be under God's rule and reign, much less enjoy it. We have to be purged, hence the idea of purgatory, in order to become those kind of people who have the capacity to not only enjoy but experience and live into the kingdom of heaven. Most Protestants just assume you live however you want, you kind of believe the right things, you die, and then you wake up the next morning and you're basically the second coming of Jesus or something. Like all sin is gone from your life. Think about that. that and that might be how it works. And I don't mean to despair. That might be how it works. That's one theory. There are other theories. Um, Willard would say it's about apprenticeship to Jesus. Catholics would say it's about purgatory. There are other theories. But just think about that for a moment. If the Genesis narrative says that in the original kingdom of God, the main problem was that we had freedom but didn't have the maturity to steward that freedom, and so we mucked it up and evil came into the world, well, if in the future kingdom of God, we're st either we're not free anymore, there's no evil. So what does that mean? Either there's no freedom, or something has happened to us to make us into the kind of people who are so free that we never choose evil again. So, Maybe we die and there's a switch in heaven and we become those kind of people. Maybe we have to go through some kind of a purging. I don't think that, but I understand the why. Maybe the time to do that is now in our apprenticeship to Jesus, to let him purge all of the sin in us, all in the flesh in us, to let him form us into people who are more and more and more free to become the kind of people who deeply who have been formed through decades of apprenticeship to Jesus into his image, set free from sin, grow and mature to become the kind of people to steward his freedom in absolute 
life and peace for eternity. All that to say, psychology, philosophy, theology, three disciplines that used to all fall under the rubric of the way of Jesus, they all agree on the law of returns and its far-reaching implications for our spiritual formation. All three disciplines agree. The more that we sow to the flesh, the more that we make decisions in the moment by moment and start to cultivate habits that give power to sin in our life, the more enslaved we become to death. And the good news, that's bad news, the good news is the more that we sow to the Spirit, the more that we cultivate habits or what we call spiritual disciplines or the practices of Jesus and, and begin to index our mind and our body and our dispositions toward Jesus' view of the world, the more that we are set free to the life that Jesus has for us. This is why all of our exercises for this fall practice are spiritual disciplines. We're working under the theory that spiritual disciplines are spiritual warfare. Put another way, the practices of Jesus are how we fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. Because one, they are the counter habits to offset the habits of our body and our mind and our society into sin. And two, they aren't just counter habits. They are the means by which we access a power beyond So they open us up, not just to the power of habit, but to the power of the Spirit of Jesus that brought Jesus back from the dead. We're highlighting two on practicingtheway.org slash fighting. The first, if you were with your community last week, was confession, where just in this act of naming your sin or your flesh's desire out loud in a safe place of a loving community, just that has a power to begin to set you free. The second is fasting, which is on the docket for the week ahead. We've done work together already as a community around this practice of fasting. This is a bit of review. If you weren't here last winter, go back last January, listen to the podcast. The practice is all online. Short version, you're a whole person. Your body is not a shell to carry your brain around. It's a part of who you are. You're an integrated, holistic human being. You have a soul. That means all of you, mind, body, spirit, material, immaterial, all of it. It's interconnected. This is why it's so hard to pray if you like overeat a rich meal and drink a bottle of wine, and it's pretty easy to pray if you're fasting for a day. Fasting is a practice by which we deny our body food in an attempt to starve our flesh. Your body is not evil, your flesh is, your body is not, your body is a gift from God. But like all gifts from God, it has been corrupted by sin, which is why eventually, no matter how vegan you are and how much you juice and exercise, which I'm all for, you will still eventually die, just later than everybody else. Fasting, (laughs) and this is true of all the spiritual disciplines, but especially this one, is a way to turn your body from an enemy in your fight with the flesh into an ally. So this practice is all up online for you. But as we near the end, remember, and we say this all the time, let me say it again, all of the practices, all of the spiritual disciplines are a means to an end. The end is not, I fast once a week or I fast three times. The end is you sow to the spirit, not to the flesh, and you reap life, not destruction. We all live, let's end here, We all live in a war between the spirit and the flesh. We feel this war in our mind. We feel it not just in our society. We feel it in our own mind. I feel it in my own body. There is no way around it, follower of Jesus or not, agree with it or not, it's there in you. But listen carefully. This war does not have to be a tug of war. Think of like, 
high school camp or whatever. You know the tug of war thing? There's a line, you got 10 people on one side, 10 on the other, and you know like when like they're evenly matched? That was the worst, and they just sit there grunting and yelling and like, for like 20 minutes, and you're like, please, right? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't have, a lot of times, that's the felt experience of our life. Like you have these desires in your flesh, and you have the desires of the Spirit, and it feels like this internal tug of war. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. People who live that way fall into what Dallas Willard called the gospel of sin management, where you just kind of manage your sin. You keep it under control. You kind of keep it behind the line. You don't get rid of it, but you keep it behind the line enough to not whatever. We don't want to live that way. We don't want to live in a tug of war. Even if we can't eradicate our flesh all the way, there's still an insurgency on the margins of our mind and our body. We want to live where its power over our mind and body has been broken by Jesus and our apprenticeship to Jesus. And the way that we do this is with habits or practices or disciplines of mind and body that open us up from the inside out to the same power that brought Jesus back from the dead. The reality is, listen carefully, we can't control our heart's desire but we sure as heck can influence it. We don't have to live in this agonizing, like divided heart, racked by desires for our flesh, desires of the spirit. Desire, think about it this way. Desire is a sibling to emotion. In a very similar way, we've done work on this. There's no switch for either, emotion or desire. It's no like, oh, it's winter now. Daylight savings should be illegal. And, um, <laughs> you know, it got dark at like 1.15 this afternoon. <laughs> And some of us grew up in California, and the sad lamp is just not cutting it. Oh, I feel really depressed right now. I should stop doing that. Flip the switch. Ah, oh, I feel so happy now. Like we all, we laugh because that's not how emotion works. There's no switch. There's no little mental like trick. There's no switch. And desire is very similar. There's no switch off like, oh, stop the desire to lust. Oh, stop the desire for an affair. Oh, stop the desire to abandon Jesus. Oh, there's no switch anywhere in you. But listen, that does not mean that we don't have a say in our emotions or our desires. With emotions, our feeling generally follows our thinking. So if you want to augment your emotions, it's very simple. You change what you think about because we can't control what we feel, but we can control for the most part what we set our mind on. Desire works along the same lines. We can't control what we desire, but we can control what we give our mind and our body to, and we can augment the desires of our flesh through habits that index our mind and our body toward the Spirit of God. This is why the writers of the New Testament and theologians in general hold us accountable not just for our sin, but for even our temptation. Not just for the act, but even for the desire to act in sin. Because even though we don't have control over our temptation, we do have, in Jesus was tempted. Temptation is not sin. But the nuance there is we do have a say in how much and how often we are tempted and to what extent it has power over our heart. All that to say, land the plane. Some of you are thinking, finally, some acts from just a decision in a moment to a habit, to your morning routine, to a line item in your budget, some acts sow to our flesh, others sow to our spirit. Which one do you want to sow into? 
Where do you want to invest the resources of your life, your time, your money, your energy, your mind, your heart posture? Sometimes it's major. Often we think that the major decisions of our life shape us. Who do I marry? Where do I move? What career do I choose? Those things all pale in comparison to what you do every morning when you wake up before you go to work. Those things pale in comparison to whether you decide to be somebody who lives in community or doesn't live in community. They pale in comparison to the overwhelming tsunami force of habit and routine and decisions that we make. So every habit, every decision, every act, every thing in your life, just run it through that grid. Does this sow to my spirit? Does this sow to my flesh? Some of you know, and I get in trouble for this sometimes, I'm pretty old school when it comes to the role of television and film, the life of an apprentice of Jesus. Basically, I think most of what you find on Netflix has no place in your mind as a follower of Jesus. If you want what Paul calls in Romans 8, a mind that is governed by life and peace, find something else to do with your time. Now, I might be way off. I might be totally legalistic. That might just be my inner fundamentalist who's still there. I work really hard to tame him down, right? Um, but here's what I know from personal experience. And again, this might speak to my immaturity, not to my maturity. All I know is that it's very rare for me to finish binge-watching Netflix or see a movie in the theater or whatever it is and walk away just saying, man, I feel so close to God right now. I just feel so full of love and joy and peace. I feel so centered in my vision of reality. I just feel like I, I don't want to lust at all. That just is gone from my heart. I just want to love my wife. I feel so content with my wife, with me, with our sexuality, with our family, with our place in God's good world. Ah, life is wonderful. I rarely feel that. I rare, especially after a Star Wars movie. Lately, I just have to go to therapy after them. It's like, <laughs> my goodness, right? Now, that doesn't mean it's not possible. Once in a while I do, when a movie is genuine art and not just entertainment designed to make money off of my flesh that I can't control, which is, I think, what most of it is. Now, feel free to set aside my fundamentalist rant. Actually, I think it's a Jesus rant, but you decide. <laughs> my point is, everything, just because every, we'll talk about this next week, just because everybody's doing it does not mean it's good, beautiful, and true. Everything, run it through that filter, Am I sowing to the spirit? Am I sowing to the flesh? One will reap destruction. Might not feel that way at 23. Trust me, it will. Don't trust me, trust Jesus, it will. The other will reap a harvest of eternal life. And again, eternal life, not just you die and go to the right place. Sure, but the quality, the experience, the depth of life, the love, the joy, the peace that Jesus has for you, not just when you die, but when you live. Both and, in the future and in the present. Somewhere else and right here, right now, there's life for you. If you just keep at it and wherever you're at, here's what we'll, I keep saying, we'll end here, we will end here. <laughs> you have nowhere else to be, right? Oh, you're like, no, I do. Netflix. Well, that was your plan before, <laughs> you know, no more of that for you now. Um, <laughs> like, dang it. It's halfway through Jack Ryan. Ah, you ruined it for me. 
don't give up. Don't give up. Some of you tonight are discouraged in your spiritual formation. You're discouraged in your mental or emotional health. You're discouraged in the power that a sin or a habit or an addiction has for you. You're discouraged in the ongoing negative rumination in your mind, and you just want to give up and throw in the towel and watch TV. Don't give up. I was sitting yesterday morning in my new house, facing Forest Park, Oh, and (laughs) it's my Sabbath. We practice Sabbath once a week, power everything down, just relax into God's presence. And it was early, it was beautiful. I slept 10 hours the night before. I was alone in the quiet, introvert heaven. And guess what? I was racked by anxiety, full of some just real tension. About, I had a really rough week emotionally, really stressed about a few things right now that I'm thinking about. And um, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, man, like I should like be done with anxiety by now. Seriously, like, I've been following Jesus for a while. I'm in therapy. I know my Enneagram number. I read all the books. Like, I know the stuff. Like, why? Ah, and I was just discouraged. Like, here, I'm practicing Sabbath. I'm sitting here in the quiet with you, Jesus. I'm supposed to, like, be super happy right now. And instead, I'm just full of anxiety. And I was so discouraged. And the Spirit, just with all the gentleness of God, brought to mind that line from James, chapter 1. Let patience have its perfect work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I just felt the Spirit brought to mind, hey, this apprenticeship to Jesus, this is a life journey. Not like a couple years in therapy and boom, you have it down. It's like, no, this is a lifetime. And then I began to think about compound interest with this week's teaching. <laughs> began to think about sitting down with Steve Marshman at 23 in the graph for retirement. Then I started to apply that to like my anxiety, right? Or my peace. This is peace in my 20s. Eh. This is peace in my 30s. A little better, but eh. Peace in my 40s. Mm. 50s. I am so awesome. You don't even know. Like, you just want a non-anxious presence in your life who's just unfazed no matter what. Come back and visit me in 20 years, all right? <laughs> and I, seriously, I brought, that is the idea. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in sowing to the spirit, not to the flesh. Don't grow weary in beginning your day in the scriptures and prayer. Don't grow weary in doing life in community when you move past all of the romance of it and it's just George and he's annoying and he doesn't bring <laughs> anything other than the cheap cheddar and not enough for everybody. Don't grow like... <laughs> You know who you are, George. Um, that might even be a prophetic word. I have no idea. Uh, don't grow weary. Just keep sowing to the Spirit, sowing to the Spirit, saying no to your flesh, and in due season you will reap a harvest, the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and all things Jesus if you do not lose heart. Let's stand together and pray.